This is the Washington Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Wednesday, March 8th, will mark the cutoff in this year's legislative session for bills to pass out of their House of Origin. So we're going to bring you a special presentation this week. On Wednesday evening, lead members of the Washington Indivisible Legislative Action Team, also known as WILA, met with Seattle Indivisible to give an update on where key legislation stands right now. So we're going to hear about criminal justice, police accountability, health care, gun safety, climate and the environment, and also housing. My thanks to Alex Fayer this week, also Lysandra Ludwig. Let's begin with criminal justice justice and police accountability. I am Deb Karstens and I'm a member of Wallingford Indivisible and I work on criminal justice and police accountability issues with Willa and I also work on criminal justice issues with the League of Women Voters of Washington. Um, so the first I have three criminal justice bills that I wanted to bring to your attention. There are quite a few more that um, Willa is tracking and also the league is tracking. And so after I'm done talking, because I cannot multitask, I will drop in some links into the chat for bills to take action on and also a couple of links to league pages that can help provide additional information since I don't have time to talk about everything tonight. So the first bill that I wanted to talk about is HB 1024, which was introduced by Representative Tara Simmons, who's formerly incarcerated. And this bill is the Real Labor, Real Wages Act. And the purpose of it is to increase the wages paid to people who are working in prison and are incarcerated. The original bill was really great. It required that people would be paid no less than the state minimum wage, which right now is $15.74 an hour. It also modified the deductions from wages for various legal financial obligations, victim restitution, child support, et cetera, and increased the amount that would be placed in people's savings accounts to 50% of their wages, and that would be available to them upon their release. And it also barred the Department of Corrections authority to collect the cost of incarceration from people who are incarcerated. So the bill has been watered down quite a bit, um, mainly for financial reasons. And the new bill requires people to be paid $1.50 an hour, which sounds awful, but as you can see from the slide, the current rate is 42 cents an hour. So this is actually a pretty big improvement. Um, it continues the requirement that 10% is placed in people's savings accounts. It does increase the amount that goes to victims um, for restitution and also the amount that goes to child support. But it also still does allow the Department of Corrections to charge for the cost of incarceration. So even though the bill, the substitute bill has been watered down quite a bit, we are still in favor of it because as you can see, it increases wages by, I don't know, I'm bad at math, like three times as much. Um, and it does improve the, the payments that are going to, to crime victims. So the current status of that bill is that it's been, it was referred to the rules committee last week um, and so the next action that we need to have taken is to ask the Rules Committee to pull the bill to the floor. And 
if you go to the Take Action Network, which I hope you all do on a regular basis, um, and type in 1024, then an action will come up. There are actually two actions that I created for this one. One, to ask the Rules Committee to pull the bill and take it to the floor. And then another one just for everyone to ask their legislators to vote yes on the bill when it comes to the floor. The next bill that I wanted to talk about is SB 5383, which is also known as the Free to Walk Act. And it basically legalizes jaywalking. And again, this is a bill that has been watered down somewhat from the original. Right now, it um, allows pedestrians to cross a roadway that has a posted speed limit of 45 miles an hour or less anywhere along the roadway. And it also allows them to cross on a don't walk signal. Um, this is a bill that I am personally in favor of because I do a lot of walking and it makes my walking easier. But the more important thing is that jaywalking laws are disproportionately enforced against members of BIPOC communities. Um, and they also are important. It's important to make changes in places that don't have a lot of crosswalks. For example, I know there are places on Rainier Avenue where it's like half a mile between crosswalks, and it just makes it impossible for people to get around if they have to, to use crosswalks. Um, and also, we're always hearing from the Seattle police, especially that they don't have enough cops and um, they need more resources. Well, if they don't have to ticket people for jaywalking, then that um, that doesn't waste the limited law enforcement resources that we have. So the status of that bill is that it has been referred to the rules committee and also needs to be pulled out of there. Um, one concern, I guess, about this bill is there's a big push in the legislature to make our streets safer. Um, because there have been so many traffic deaths and some legislators see this bill as a way to not make bill or our streets safer. Um, although actually jaywalking laws do not make us safer. So it's this bill is probably going to need a little extra help to get through. Um, and the last criminal justice bill that I wanted to talk about is SB 5536, which is a bill that we are opposing. Um, and this is a bill that is in response to, um, I don't know if many of you are familiar with the Blake decision that came out in 2021. The Supreme Court ruled that our state's drug possession laws are unconstitutional. Um, and in response to that, the legislature quickly passed a law that recriminalized them, but made drug possession a misdemeanor and required that the first two offenses, for the first two offenses, people would be diverted to treatment programs. That bill had a sunset clause and it expires at the end of June. And so again, the legislature is faced with having to do something on an expedited basis. As part of the 2021 law, they set up a committee known as SURSAC, which stands for Substance Use Recovery Services Advisory Committee. And they made several recommendations about what a new law should look like. And those recommendations were included in another bill this year that did not go anywhere, unfortunately. Um, and one of those recommendations was to completely decriminalize um, the, the possession of drugs in amounts, um, in small amounts. And what this bill does, the reason that we're opposed to it is it not only keeps it as a criminal offense, it changes it from a misdemeanor to a gross misdemeanor. So it's actually making things worse. While it recommends 
um, and encourages diversion, the fact that it's not mandated means that that is going to be applied differently across the state. For example, if a law enforcement agency, if the people in it don't think that diversion is a good idea, then they're not going to do it. So whether you're referred to treatment kind of depends on where you live. Um, and the bill also fails to recognize what most Washingtonians recognize, that drug substance use disorder presents a public health issue, not a criminal justice issue. And we've tried the criminal justice route, it hasn't worked. Um, and it's much better to um, use community resources and treatment as a, a method to address this issue. So we're hoping that people will vote no on that. Um, unfortunately, today that was placed on second reading by the rules committee. So that means it can come up for a vote anytime in the Senate. Um, and so our action is to tell our legislators to vote no on this bill. For police accountability, there are a lot of good bills this year and they actually um, are doing pretty well, which is encouraging. Um, we did a lot of police reform in 2021, then not so much last year because it was an election year, um, but now things are looking better. And the first bill I wanted to talk about is HB 1025, which is the Access to Fairness Act. Um, and this is a bill that was brought forward in 2021, but did not make it through. It's now been divided into two bills, one of which is 1025. And basically what this bill does is it authorizes a private right of action when a law enforcement officer violates someone's state constitutional rights. And the important thing about this is that it gives an alternative to a federal cause of action because under federal law, there's a doctrine that has developed known as qualified immunity that you may be familiar with that basically immunizes law enforcement officers from liability for violating someone's constitutional rights if those rights were not, quote, clearly defined at the time. And the way that that doctrine has been applied is that unless the exact same situation occurred, um, then a law enforcement officer cannot be held liable. So it's a huge loophole that has allowed people, law enforcement officers to escape accountability. This bill will close that loophole. And one important thing to note about this bill, because there is misinformation about it, is that individual officers are not going to be held liable it's police departments. And so it encourages police departments to ensure that they are hiring, training, and supervising their officers properly. The status of this bill is that um, it has been placed on second reading by the Rules Committee as of yesterday, which is great because that means that it can go for a vote on the House floor at any time. And so the action on this bill is to ask our legislators to vote yes. The next bill that I wanted to talk about is HB 1513, which is known as the Traffic Safety for All Bill, uh, which is a very timely bill in light of the recent murder of Tyree Nichols. It limits traffic stops for non-moving violations to those that affect public safety. So for example, police can no, would no longer be able to pull you over for expired tabs or similar um, types of violations. Another provision of the bill that 
everyone, including law enforcement, is in favor of is that it provides funding for a grant program to law enforcement departments to have funds to help people fix their vehicle defects and other issues like lack of insurance. So for example, if someone is pulled over because they have a defective taillight and that's seen to be a safety issue under the circumstances, then instead of writing a ticket, an officer can instead give someone a voucher to go get that fixed. And then they would have X amount of time to get that repaired. So it's actually making our streets safer um, instead of just generating revenue for law enforcement and local governments. Um, another provision of this bill would require written consent before officers can search a vehicle or passengers. And the need for this bill is sort of similar to the jaywalking bill, only even more so. Um, there are decades of research show that there are persistent racial disparities for traffic stops. Um, and in our state, a recent study showed that BIPOC drivers are searched at a rate up to five times that of white motorists, even though officers are more likely to find contraband when they're searching the cars of white drivers. Um, and even when they do find contraband, there's a very low rate of success. And I just read an article that included a quote from a Republican legislator who said that, well, you know, we still need to have traffic stops because that's a really good way to, to find evidence of other crimes. And that's just not the case. So um, the status of that bill is that it is in the rules committee and we need to get that pulled to the floor for a vote. Um, and then the final bill that I wanted to talk about is HB 1363, which is another bill that we're opposing. Um, and in 2021, the, as part of the, um, I think there were a dozen bills on police accountability. One of those bills it strengthened the restrictions on vehicle pursuits, which are very dangerous to the person being pursued, to police, and to innocent bystanders. Um, and so under the 2021 law, it requires probable cause um, before a police of a crime, before police can institute a vehicle pursuit, and it's only for certain serious crimes. When HB 1363 was initially introduced, it allowed vehicle pursuits upon reasonable suspicion, which is a lower standard of proof for any kind of a crime. And the reason I think that this bill was introduced in that manner is because as people know, there are a lot of concerns about increased crime of various types and all of that concern seemed to focus on the claim that officers could no longer do vehicle pursuits. If you think about it, it doesn't really make sense, but that is where all the energy has been focused. So the good news is that there's been a lot of advocacy on this issue and the bill as it is now has been significantly improved from the original bill. It still would have that low reasonable suspicion standard, which isn't great, um, but it would limit the number of crimes that can be, um, that a vehicle pursuit can be authorized for. And another positive change to the bill is that it sunsets after two years. And that will give time for another bill to go into effect, HB 1586, which requires the Criminal Justice Training Commission to develop a work group to put together some policy recommendations. So in that way, 
um, that will give time for for an advisory group to improve the current law if it needs to be improved. Um, and if they decide not to improve it, then it reverts back to the original status that it is right now with uh, the probable cause standard and limited number of crimes. Another piece of the, the 1586 bill is that it would provide grants for a program for technology that is can be used as an alternative to vehicle pursuits like GPS trackers, um, license plate readers, even drones. Um, and we might have concerns about those, but I think they are at least safer than vehicle pursuits. So even though the bill has been improved, we still are concerned about the reasonable suspicion standard because that can really give a whole lot of leeway to law enforcement to initiate dangerous vehicle pursuits. So we're still opposed to this bill. Um, it's been referred to the Rules Committee, but hasn't made it to the floor yet. If it does, then we want to tell our legislators to vote no. So those are the bills that I have to talk about. And like I said, I will drop in some links in the chat um, that you can take action on. So thank you. Um, and I'm gonna turn it over to Jim. Hi, I'm Jim Austin. I'm with Indivisible Washington's 8th District, a uh, group on the east side. And for the last few years, I've been the lead in among uh, the healthcare uh, bill trackers uh, within Willa. Uh, this year, we have, I think, seven or eight people who are tracking healthcare bills of various types. Uh, we started out by identifying bills that we thought were potentially uh, tracking worthy those bills that might need to have some additional support from uh, all of us within the indivisible movement around the state. Uh, and we identified 86 uh, such bills that uh, deserve support. But we also identified seven bills uh, that we felt uh, ought to be watched uh, just in case they made it anywhere in either house. Uh, because we uh, absolutely would have wanted to oppose those bills uh, if they moved at all. Those seven bills all uh, were ones that would uh, impose curtailments on reproductive freedom. And I'm happy to report that none of those bills uh, made it past the first cutoff. So uh, none of those bills remain alive. But of the 86 bills that we thought were potentially track tracking worthy and deserved our support, uh, we picked the 26 bills that we thought were the most important and we're tracking those. Uh, I might add that of those 86 potentially tracking worthy bills, 51 are still alive in the legislature. So uh, that's a pretty good percentage actually at this point in the legislative session. And among those that we are tracking and supporting the 26, uh, 21 of those are still alive and kicking. So uh, we're doing pretty well so far, but we still have a lot of the session to go. And we need uh, your help in uh, helping us to push these bills uh, over the finish line. And that means when you see uh, TAN actions, if you uh, hopefully you're all signed up on TAN and are getting the daily emails from TAN, make sure you take those actions uh, when you see uh, calls to action, because they really do uh, make a big difference. Now, I'm going to talk about 
uh, bills within three of the areas that we have uh, been principally focused on. There are some uh, there are additional bills within each of these areas, and there are uh, bills in in some other uh, areas uh, that we're also tracking that remain alive and are are moving forward. But the areas I want to talk about are. Uh, bills dealing with preservation of competition and access to care in light of the uh, continued consolidation of healthcare providers in our state, bills dealing with reproductive care and gender affirming treatment. Uh, uh, that's That was uh, announced as one of the governor's principal uh, priorities in the legislative session before it began. And then uh, just a few words on progress uh, toward a statewide universal health care system. Uh, in that first group, uh, bills dealing with preservation of competition uh, are two bills of significance that are still alive. And you'll see be seeing, I'm sure, uh, additional uh, calls to action on. The first of those is SB 5241. Uh, that's become known as the Keep Our Care Act. And what that bill does is it provides for a more extensive and a more rigorous system in our state uh, of uh, initial review and approval of health care consolidations, uh, particularly those that may have uh, anti-competitive effects, uh, uh, those that could... Uh, result in increases in uh, the cost of health care by virtue of uh, increased market power, uh, and also those that would eliminate uh, access to care, either through, and this happens particularly in rural areas, where you see consolidations that result in the elimination of facilities. And then because uh, some of the uh, providers uh, that have been most aggressive in consolidating are those that are Catholic organizations. There's a real concern that uh, with the possibility of people in various areas of our state uh, finding themselves not able to receive certain types of care that the Catholic Church opposes uh, on a religious basis. So 5241 uh, would... Uh, is designed to make certain that when there are consolidations, they don't have an anti-competitive effect and uh, they don't uh, result in people not finding themselves able to obtain the care uh, they want and need. The second bill uh, I mentioned here is SB 5393. Uh, that one, uh, by the way, that first bill is in the Rules Committee in the Senate. Uh, and we need to get it out of the Rules Committee and onto the floor uh, by March 8th, the next cutoff date. Uh, and uh, SB 5393 also is in the Senate Rules Committee right now. Uh, some of you may have seen the 60 Minutes episode a couple of years ago uh, dealing with the Sutter Health situation in California. Sutter Health was a uh, a major provider and had accumulated sufficient market power in certain areas of the state, uh, including the Sacramento area, where it was able to force providers uh, with 
with whom it dealt into including into their their contracts various anti-competitive provisions, uh, provisions that really had uh, no justification other than for the purpose of forcing uh, patients and insureds uh, to be directed to Sutter Health uh, Clinics. And of course, that enabled them to raise the uh, uh, prices they charged for uh, uh, healthcare services. In, in fact, uh, uh, their services in the Sacramento area were significantly higher than even their services were in other major metropolitan areas in California. Uh, ultimately, there was a class action brought against Sutter Health. Uh, what happened was ultimately there was a settlement, a 500 plus million dollar settlement. Uh, under which Sutter Health agreed that it no longer would include uh, these various anti-competitive provisions in its contracts. What 5393 would do is uh, we haven't had anyone so far, as, as far as we know, including those sorts of provisions in their contracts, but it would prevent any healthcare provider in our state from including uh, those sorts of provisions in uh, contracts. So it's a preventative measure, making certain that if there are additional consolidations in our state, and if those consolidations do result in a provider obtaining significant uh, contracting power, they don't use that power to the detriment of insurance and patients. The second area where there have been significant bills in the legislature this year and, and are significant bills uh, are in the is in the area of reproductive care and gender affirming treatment. Uh, the first bill I mentioned on the slide is uh, there are two com uh, uh, two bills, one in the uh, House, one in the Senate that are companion bills, HB 1469 and SB 5489. Uh, I'm happy to report that yesterday, 1469 passed out of the House. Uh, 5489 is uh, in the Rules Committee uh, in the Senate. Uh, what that bill does is it protects against uh, the sort of out-of-state vigilante laws that we've seen in Texas and a few other states. Um, what it does is it provides that if there are actions taken in those in the courts of those other states and a, an attempt is made to use our courts to obtain uh, information, documents, et cetera, testimony through subpoena uh, in states on account of uh, a person having obtained uh, an abortion or gender affirming treatment or having provided uh, that kind of care. Uh, our state courts will not uh, be used uh, to support that effort and uh, the subpoena will not be enforced in our state. Uh, the second bill I mentioned here is HB 1340. Uh, almost all states have provisions in their statutes dealing with healthcare uh, uh, discipline, dis the, the discipline of healthcare providers that provides for disciplinary action uh, against a healthcare provider in our state if they've been subject to discipline uh, in other states uh, as well. And 
what 1340 does is says we're not going to discipline a healthcare provider in our state on account of disciplinary action in another state. If that other state's disciplinary action is based upon their having provided uh, reproductive services or gender affirming treatment that is legal uh, in our state. And we're not going to prevent people from obtaining licensure in our state uh, on that basis uh, either. SB 5242 uh, also is a bill that uh, passed uh, yesterday. And by the way, 1340 also passed uh, yesterday. So uh, these three bills are uh, moving. 5242, uh, which passed the Senate yesterday, does actually two things. Uh, Number one, it says that if a, a health care insurer covers uh, maternity services as part of its health plan, then it must also provide uh, 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 coverage for abortion. Uh, There are religious exemptions available and a process by which religious exemptions uh, may be uh, obtained. But the general rule is that if an insurer is not a religious organization and it uh, provides uh, uh, coverage for maternity services, it must also provide uh, coverage for uh, uh, pregnancy termination services. In addition, what it says is that if an an insurer then is covering both maternity services and abortion services, it may not require the patient to uh, assume a greater portion of the cost than in the case of an abortion, uh, than it requires the patient to bear when it comes to uh, maternity services. Uh, SB 5599, uh, which is on the Senate floor right now, it's passed out of the Rules Committee, is a really important bill. It protects homeless uh, youths who are either in a a state facility or seeking to be placed in a state facility or uh, a state-supervised home situation. Our statutes generally require that uh, in the case of uh, such minors, there's an obligation to report uh, the fact that they are there to the parents. And there are a variety of exemptions uh, under the current statute uh, that would eliminate the requirement of notifying parents. Uh, What 5599 would do is to expand those exceptions to include the fact uh, in in a particular case that a youth, a minor, either is receiving or seeking uh, either reproductive care or gender-affirming treatment. Uh, SJR 8202, uh, of course, all of these uh, statutes are, are, are a good thing if they are adopted, but uh, they can always be repealed if there's a change in control of the legislature. And if you, what you really want is a significant protection uh, for abortion rights, 
Uh, the way you would go about doing it is through a constitutional amendment. And that is what SJR 8202 is all about. It would uh, put to the voters a state constitutional amendment uh, enshrining a right to reproductive care in our state. Uh, it is probably, although it's still live, uh, and, and like I say, it's on the Senate floor, uh, the likelihood is that it's not going to pass uh, the legislature. In order to be put to the voters, it would require a two-thirds vote uh, in each house. Uh, and uh, the Democrats only have about 60% of the Senate seats and only about 60% of the House seats. Uh, and when you look at the votes that have already taken place in the case of the three bills, reproductive care bills I just mentioned, uh, those votes are virtually along party lines. So uh, there is almost no chance that that this bill will get a two thirds majority, but it will put people on record uh, uh, as to their position uh, once it does come to a vote uh, uh, in the state Senate. Uh, finally, HB 1151, uh, when we talk about um reproductive freedom. There's, of course, the issue of whether people are to be free to terminate a pregnancy. But there's also uh, an important consideration for those who wish to have a child and uh, can't. Uh, infertility is a medical condition. It's an eminently treatable medical condition. And yet it's not been treated as an essential health service and thus insurers have not been required to provide coverage for fertility care. Uh, and as a consequence of that, in something like 12% of all women uh, at some point in their life uh, experience a, a difficulty with fertility. Uh, and approximately four out of five couples who uh, would like to have a child, but can't because of a fertility problem, are not able to access the care they need simply because they don't have insurance that covers it. Uh, uh, and uh, the cost of that treatment without insurance is just too steep. So HB 50, 1151 uh, would... Uh, what this bill would do is mandate that insurers in our state provide coverage for fertility care. Then finally, uh, uh, just to mention uh, about our progress toward a statewide universal health care system. Back in 2018, the legislature um, uh, allocated a couple hundred thousand dollars for the uh, Institute of uh, for Public Policy in our state to do a, a, a sort of a survey on uh, universal health care systems uh, and report back to the legislature on that, which they did. Then in 2019, the legislature uh, created a universal health care working group and asked for a report with recommendations on uh, how the state might go about establishing a universal healthcare system. The work group did its work, it uh, reported back. And then last year, rather than moving ahead with legislation uh, to establish such a system, 
uh, uh, what it did was uh, create a new commission, which is in existence and hopefully will be adequately funded so that it can complete its work in the next year or two. But one of the things that the working group did uh, in its report was to identify various uh, difficulties that a state like ours would have if we wanted to establish a universal health care system. And some of those difficulties are ones that exist at the federal level, uh, trying to integrate uh, federal uh, health care systems into a statewide universal health care uh, system would be uh, quite difficult, particularly with in the case of Medicare and VA, which are federally administered uh, programs. Uh, and we also have a, a, a statute at the federal level, uh, ERISA, uh, the Employment Retirement Income Security Act, which uh, effectively prohibits states from uh, eliminating employer-based health care plans uh, because it has a, a federal preemption provision in it. So there are things that need to be done at the federal level that that would really make it much easier for states uh, such as ours to adopt a universal health care system. And if any of you are familiar with what happened in Canada, of course, Canada has a universal health care system. It really all started at the provincial level when one province it happened to be says Saskatchewan. When Saskatchewan was uh, adopted a universal health care system. And then one after another a province uh, did. And then finally, it was adopted on the, the national level. Well, SJM 8006 would call upon the Biden administration and the federal government to uh, uh, either to adopt a universal health care system at the national level or barring that, and there's not much likelihood that's going to happen anytime soon, to partner with our state in making the changes that are necessary at the federal system to uh, enable, sorry, to uh, uh, enable a state such as ours to adopt uh, a universal health care system. Uh, in addition to the bills in these areas, uh, there are some other important bills that you'll probably be getting in the health care area that you'll be getting uh, uh, TAM calls to action on. There's a significant health care privacy bill that's still making its way through the uh uh, the legislature. There's an expanded Death with Dignity Act uh, that's also making its way through, and a number of important behavioral health uh, uh, bills. One, for example, that would set up a new uh, 988 number where uh, uh, people could call if there was somebody uh, suffering a behavioral health emergency that uh, presented a, a risk uh, to their uh, themselves or to other people. So that's what's going on in the healthcare area. And again, please make sure you respond to those TAN calls to action because they are really important. Hi, good evening. Um, my name is Stephen Wilhelm. I'm with the Snohomish County Indivisible. And let me start out by apologizing for the uh, orange hue on the video. Apparently, um, in spite of every effort, uh, the my laptop seems to want to uh, show its solidarity with the Alliance for Gun Responsibility. Their signature color is orange, as you may know. So 
Um, apparently, we're going to do everything in orange tonight. So since I can't do anything about it, I'm just going to embrace the alliance color. Um, so Washington Indivisible Legislative Action Team is uh, started out by tracking about a dozen uh, gun safety bills in, in this session. Um, we're down to about a half dozen bills that are still alive. And fortunately, three of the bills um, are the highest priority uh, bills for the Alliance for Gun Responsibility. And those are the three um, that I'd like to highlight for you tonight. Um, the first bill is... Uh, HB 1240, which is the assault weapons ban. Um, that'll prevent the uh, sale of new assault weapons in Washington. Um, not an ideal bill in that uh, one of the sweeteners that they've left in the bill to try and get it through the legislation, legislator, legis legislature, sorry, is um, to allow, there's apparently at least one gun manufacturing um, organization here in Washington state and they're going to be allowed to continue to manufacture assault weapons, but they won't be allowed to sell their products here in, in Washington state. So um, any any bill that will do anything to limit the number of um, weapons of war on the streets is, is a good bill. And so we're asking to um, support that bill. Um, that bill is currently in the rules committee. There is a take action network uh, call to action on that one. And so the, the call to action on that that bill is to get in touch with your uh, legislator if they are on the rules committee and ask them to pull that uh, bill onto the House floor so that the whole House can vote on it. Um, similarly, uh, HB 1143 is uh, kind of in the same boat. That is the uh, permit to purchase bill um, that requires several um Several things before a person can take uh, ownership of a new uh, weapon. The most important thing is it requires a, a, a permit uh, before you can um, buy the weapon. It also requires training and it requires a 10 day waiting period to make sure that uh, we can get through the background check uh, for each purchase uh, um, rather than right now there's about a three day limit on, on uh, how long we can wait for a background check to go through. So that'll be a big improvement on that. So that's another high priority bill. Um, and, and that's in the same, um, that's in the same boat. Um, it's in the rules committee. It's, uh, waiting to be pulled onto the house floor. There isn't a take action, uh, network call to action on that one yet. It's being drafted. It should be live in the next 24 hours. But if you can't, just can't wait for that, uh, uh, call to action, um, it's, it's the same for both bills, uh, uh, 1240, the assault weapons ban, and 1143 permit to purchase. Uh, get in touch with your legislator on the rules committee. Ask them to pull it um, out of the rules committee so so they can both get uh, votes on the house floor. Um, if you're on Take Action Network, that'll tell you who your whether your legislator is your representative is on the rules committee. If anybody wants to um, just throw a question in the in the chat, I can I can look it up for you while we're while we're talking about some other stuff. Um, but uh, if you're on Take Action Network, that'll solve the problem for you. The last bill I wanted to highlight for you is uh, Senate Bill 5078. Um, that's the uh, Pathways to Justice for Gun Violence weapon of uh, Gun Violence Victims. You may be aware of a, a federal uh, bill called the PLACA, the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act. That's the bill that prevents um, the gun industry from being sued uh, for. Uh, deaths and injuries that their um, their devices uh, cause, even though 40,000 Americans, more than 40,000 Americans are killed by those uh, devices every year. Fortunately, 
FLACA does have a provision in it where state laws um, can be implemented to um, hold the gun industry accountable. And so that's what this bill will do, 5078, will allow uh, people in Washington to hold the uh, gun industry members accountable for the for the harms that they cause. Um, I believe that uh, eight other states and the District of Columbia already have similar laws, so we would be the ninth. Uh, and the action on that one is for everybody uh, to get in touch with their senator and ask them to vote yes on the Senate floor. Um, this one looks like it just went live on the, on the Senate floor calendar tonight. So what's in Take Action Network tonight is still an ask to pull it out of the Rules Committee, but we'll go ahead and expire that action. And uh, tomorrow we'll go live with an action that asks everybody to get in touch with their senator and ask them to vote yes on 5078, the Pathways to Justice for Gun Violence Victims. Um, all three of those bills need to pass out of their chamber of origin. So the two House bills need to pass out of the House and the Senate bill needs to pass out of the Senate by next Wednesday, March 8th. So um, we've got a little bit of time, but we definitely want to get in touch with our uh, senators and representatives and, and uh, get those three bills into the next chamber. And that's all I have to share tonight. Hi, I'm Sarah Richards from Indivisible Kirkland. Uh, there are currently 168 climate and environment bills that have been introduced to date. Of those, we're tracking 89, but it's a very large category. I will summarize three of the bills today, but I wanted to first mention a couple generalities. The first is that environment bills tend to pass more easily through the House than through the Senate, uh, as there's more of a Democratic majority. And in the Senate, there are several Democrat senators who sometimes vote against environmental bills. And particularly, we see it in the fiscal committees. And the past couple of years, uh, some of the environmental bills are dying in the, specifically the Ways and Means Committee. HB 1181 and its Senate companion is a high priority environmental bill and improving, it's called improving the state's response to climate change by updating the state's planning framework. You may know this as the climate, um, adding climate to the GMA. The bill requires that future comprehensive plans across the state have to include a climate change element consisting of an element to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and um, and a resiliency element. So of the many benefits of this bill, they include reducing greenhouse gas emissions by just more efficient planning of housing and transportation systems. And then that also protects and enhances the natural environment that we have through less sprawl. It will ensure that our urban and rural areas adapt to and mitigate climate change, and also advance environmental justice. So last year, this bill went through um, through the process, the legislature, and it almost passed, but it failed at the last minute. And it was a very complicated story, but um, basically it met with resistance in the Senate Ways and Means Committee. This year, the Senate version of the bill is dead. It died in Ways and Means in Senate. But in the House, the votes have been so far along party lines, and it has advanced to the Rules Committee, where it's sitting waiting to be up for a floor vote. So we do have a call to action for this one. And um, after I'm done, I'll pop that into the chat. Okay, next bill is 
1131 and SB 5154, the Washington Recycling and Packaging Act or the RAP Act. This bill addresses reducing packaging waste. It shifts free recycling costs away from the ratepayers and on to the manufacturers, and it modernizes our recycling system so that we actually packaging actually can be recycled, composted, or reused. The status is that the Senate version, like the bill above, appears to have died in ways and means. However, the House version is in the Rules Committee waiting for a floor vote. And we also have a call to action where you can help for this bill. And the third bill I wanted to talk about, which is another bill aimed at climate emissions, is 1391, the Clean Energy Incentive Navigator Program. And this bill will help to upgrade and retrofit existing buildings to cleaner forms of energy. The newly passed Inflation Reduction Act, which you've probably heard about, along with existing state programs, provide incentives to help people switch to cleaner forms of energy. But knowing what changes to make and how to implement them is not easy. Um, our household just switched over from a gas furnace to electric heat pump, and it was not a simple process to navigate. The Navigator Bill establishes a program to help homeowners, multifamily building owners, and tenants to understand and access clean energy programs by finding energy audit services, linking them, the, the um, users up with qualified contractors, and helping to secure finance and obtaining incentives. The status of this bill, uh, we did have a call to action, but as of this morning, it has passed the House. So uh, votes on this bill have also been partisan and stay tuned for upcoming action alerts. Hi everybody, um, I'm Ruth Lipscomb. I'm a member of Indivisible East Side. And I didn't use the same background as everybody else, but you'll notice mine has hardwood floors. So I think that kind of goes with the housing theme. So um, there's a lot of, of, there are a zillion different housing bills this uh, legislative session. And um, in Willow, we are tracking 52 of them. So I've put them into some buckets, but I'm not gonna talk about all of them, but I'll talk mostly about the, the highest priority ones and what the buckets are. So the thing about housing is that we need more types in more places. We need to build it faster or cheaply. We need to fund affordable housing and we need to make housing stable. So I'll go through these themes and tell you what bills are in each. So um, to create more types of housing, there's a middle housing bill that will allow duplexes up to six plexes, depending on where in the state and you know how close to transit and what size of city and a bunch of other things. Uh, that's the biggest housing bill and it is going through uh, with a coalition of housing groups plus builders, and it is being opposed by the Association of Washington Cities. Cities want to keep their local control. So this is the bill that will basically, um, for a lot of the more populated areas of the state, will eliminate single family zoning. Uh, the bill is getting strong bipartisan support. It's awaiting a floor vote right now, and it has been put on the calendar, but it's, it's pretty far down. Um, HB 1337 would loosen the rules for accessory dwelling units. It would require cities to allow accessory dwelling units, both attached and detached. And it also is getting strong bipartisan support and it is waiting a floor vote. 
And the last bill uh, on this page, HB 1245, allows a single time for a lot to be split into two lots. And then the, that uh, can be built on without being um, uh, having more restrictive uh, rules than the original lot had. And actually, if Alex, if there's a way for you to refresh this uh, slideshow, uh, this bill just passed the House today. So I don't know if, uh, well, yeah. Anyway, um, so I'll go on to the next slide. Um, the next slide is um, getting more housing in more places and building it faster and more cheaply. Um, the big one here is transit-oriented development, which would require cities to allow uh, higher densities um, close to major transit hubs, which are like rail stations um, and some, um, some transit centers. So it also requires lower parking uh, minimums in those areas. That passed the Senate today, uh, bipartisan support, and it moves on to the House. Uh, a number of the cities do not like this particular bill because it forces them to allow density in areas that, in a lot of cases, there's single family neighborhoods who are fighting. So this one is looking pretty good, but there is probably gonna be a lot of resistance in the House. Uh, the next two bills, um, the one to eliminate design review, which is used in a number of different places, Seattle in particular, to delay and, and make uh, buildings more costly. It has uh, passed unanimously out of the Housing Committee, and it's the number one bill on the floor vote calendar right now. So this one is looking pretty likely to get through. Uh, HB 1351 lowers required parking minimums. It is, has a little bit harder um, um, future because it came out of the committee on a party line vote. So next slide. Uh, these is, this slide is all about how, these, how affordable housing can be funded. And um, I'll talk about three of them. The first one, HB 1474 is a bill that will help families that were previously blocked from buying by racialized covenants that were pretty common across the state up until the Fair Housing Act of 1968. And this would allow anyone who would have been barred to, um, to be able to get some assistance with down payment and um, some administrative assistance in being able to purchase a house. So that one is uh, has some resistance from the realtors no, the realtors are, let's see. Actually, the realtors are in favor of this one. They're opposed to the last one on this list. Um, so this one is uh, has made it through and just needs to be pulled onto the floor for a vote. The next one is the big governor request bill to do $4 billion worth of affordable housing bonds. Uh, this would be a revenue referendum that would go to the voters who would have to, the statewide vote would have to okay it. Uh, there's not a funding source associated with it, so it would just basically promise to pay back bonds in the future, which is why the anti-tax groups are coming out against it. So uh, we'll see where this goes. The cutoff to talk about these, since it's related to revenue and the budget, will be later than the, the upcoming vote for bills to get out of the, the first 
chamber, the chamber of origin. The last one on this page would, uh, HB 1628 would increase the real estate excise tax. It would add another tier for houses that sell for more than $5 million. And it, that money would go into the affordable housing trust fund. And uh, this one, the realtors don't like because it adds an extra cost onto buying a house that is over $5 million, which they don't like. But housing groups do want to have some more revenue coming in for affordable housing. This one actually uh, died because it did not get through the appropriations committee cutoff, but it might be back as part of a budget negotiation later. So next slide. This is my final slide is about tenant protections. And uh, one of the things that we need in addition to more supply is we need the housing that is there to be more stable. There's two that are moving through. Um, HB 1124 would give six months notice to uh, of rent increases that are significant. So, you know, depending on where the amendments are, it, it will be, you know, probably 7% or more. Um, but it allows the tenants to also break a lease when the, they know that the rent is going up significantly. Right now, if you're trapped in a lease and you get a notification that your rent is going to be going up, you basically have less than a month to rent. And if you can't find something that's available right then, you could get trapped into either a more expensive month-to-month -month situation or you, you, know, you can't move at all. So that would, uh, that one, needs uh, pulling to the floor. And so there will be some actions on that. Uh, HB 1389 is rent stabilization. It would basically limit rent increases to the rate of inflation or 3%, whichever is, is higher. Um, this one has had close votes with not all Democrats voting in favor of it. So uh, this one is going to be a struggle and we need to get it pulled to the floor out of the Rules Committee and we need to convince all the Democrats to vote yes. And that is it for our legislative update. My thanks to all of our presenters, Deb Karstens, Jim Austin, Stephen Wilhelm, Sarah Richards, and Ruth Lipscomb. My thanks again also to Alex Fair and Lysandra Ludwig. And that'll do it for this week. The executive producer of the show is Kat Pipkin. If you'd like to see a video version of this podcast, head to facebook.com slash indivisible podcast. The email address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. Special thanks to Lori Kowal. And as always, my thanks to you for listening. I'm Stephen Cox, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.